Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. Here's your regular reminder. If you're listening to this when it drops and you're eligible to do so, vote. I've already dropped my ballot off at the clerk's office. I'd comment on the rest of what's happening in the world right now, but who even knows anymore these days? Today's play is The Suppliants, or The Suppliant Women by Euripides. You'll see the title translated both ways. I'm working from the John Davy translation from 1998, and he uses the latter, um, The Suppliant Women. But as long as you're reading a play by Euripides with a title that has the word suppliant in it, then you're reading the right play. Um, we'll see that this group of suppliant women are not the same as the group of suppliant women in the Aeschylus play with the same title. So it could get very confusing if you're looking at Aeschylus when we're talking about Euripides or vice versa if you haven't listened to the episode on Aeschylus' suppliant women yet. (laughs) The suppliants premiered at the end of the 420s BCE, maybe around 423. Um, We don't have an exact date. Um, But this does place the writing during the Peloponnesian War, and it is very much a war story. Um, But we've already seen that Euripides tends to focus on women, and in this play, well, like I said, it is a war story. Um, It's about how war affects those who are left behind. You should already be familiar with the background myth for this play because we've read about it in both Aeschylus and Sophocles. Um, Specifically in Seven Against Thebes um, by Aeschylus and Antigone by Sophocles, we read the story of how Polynices and Ateocles kill each other and how Antigone fights for the burial of Polynices. Um, But... There are seven against Thebes, not one. So what happened to the other six champions? Um, And so, you know, in Antigone, we hear the story about what happens to one of those seven, um, what happens to Polynices' body um, after, after he's killed. And in today's play, we will learn what happens to the other six men who were killed at the, at the gates of Thebes. Um, But this play is not set in Thebes. It is set at the Temple of Demeter and Persephone just outside of Athens. The characters include Theseus, the king of Athens, and his mother, Aethra. Um, on the side of the suppliants, we have Adrastus, the king of Thebes. Um, sorry, Ar- Argos, not Thebes. Um, Evadne, one of the widows, and her father, Iphis. Um, Athena will appear for a deus ex machina at the end of the play. And that's all of our named characters. There is an unnamed herald who is the only character from Thebes. Again, Adrastus is from Argos. Um, And there's a messenger. Um, The primary chorus is made up of the mothers of the seven who died at the gates of Thebes. Uh, But since that's not enough people to make up a chorus, their handmaids fill out the other 12 to 15 that you would expect. And um, there may not even be seven mothers, but I'll go into more detail on that point in the analysis section. There is also a secondary chorus in this play, and uh, that chorus is comprised of the sons of the dead. So this is another play where we'll see the chorus kind of split, and there is a men's chorus and a women's chorus. They're not homogenous, like um, like I joke about um, existing in a lot of Greek plays. This is a heart-wrenching play. Um, consider yourself warned. 
<laughs> so we'll take a short break while um, you take a breath and while I take a breath <laughs> before we dive into the plot. play opens on the chorus and Ethra seated at the temple of Demeter and Persephone. Um, yes, this means there is technically no parados in this play. The chorus doesn't have some grand entrance. They are on stage from the start. Ethra prays to Demeter on behalf of herself, Theseus, and all of Athens. And in her speech, Ethra tells of how these old women are now childless because their seven sons were killed at Thebes. They have come with Adrastus, their king, to seek help recovering the bodies of their sons. Creon has decreed that they are not to be buried, the same basic story that we read in Antigone, only now we're learning that the other six um, have have the same fate um, as Polynices. Um, so we're learning about them instead of just focusing on, on the one body. Ethra has sent for Theseus, who, no surprise, enters. Theseus asks what all the crying is about, and Ethra repeats the information she gave in her prologue, introducing the mothers, Adrastus, and the children. Adrastus makes his case to Theseus, explaining that he led the charge against Thebes because Polynices is, or was his son-in-law. He admits that he allowed himself to be swayed by the young heroes and that he shouldn't have been so hasty to war. He tells Theseus that Athens is his only hope. I mean, sure, he could have gone to Sparta because Sparta is pretty strong, but you simply can't trust Spartans. No, only Athens can help in this case. Um, in case we forgot that this is the Peloponnesian War and Athens and Sparta don't get along. Theseus pontificates for a couple of pages, speaking about power and ultimately concluding that Adrastus has said nothing that Theseus can take to the people of Athens to convince them that attacking Thebes is a good plan. Adrastus hangs his head and mumbles that, fine, they'll just go then. Ithra, however, does not move. Theseus asks her why. Why does she care so much? The grief of these other women should not cause her to weep too, which heartless much I yeah and Athra gives it to him as only his mother can she tells him that she won't stay silent any longer because then she won't regret not having spoken up men go off and fight and die and never think about what this does to those left behind here he has a chance to help the bereaved and yet he is choosing not to if he marches to Thebes to recover the bodies, he will win because justice is on his side. Theseus agrees to take it up for a vote. He, Ethra, and Adrastus exit. The chorus sings of their home in Argos and prays that Athens will be able to protect them. Theseus and Adrastus enter. Theseus dictates a message for Creon. He starts by politely asking for the bodies back before moving into the ultimatum of what will happen if Creon doesn't comply. Before Theseus's herald can take the message to Thebes, a herald arrives from that city. The Theban herald asks for the king of Athens because he has a message from Creon. Theseus first says that the herald is mistaken if he thinks that Athens has king, because that's not how the government works in Athens. There is not one man in charge. Yes, the king of Athens says that. Ah, uh, try not to think too hard about it. At least, not until I come back to that point in the analysis section. 
Theseus and the Herald debate the merits of different forms of government before finally getting around to why the Herald is there in the first place. Creon knows that Adrastus is seeking help, and he has sent a warning to Athens not to let Adrastus in. <laughs> Oops, too late. And if Athens has let Adrastus in, well, that means war. Surely everyone agrees that if there is the choice between war and peace, that peace is the better option. So Theseus shouldn't help recover the bodies of the dead enemies of Thebes. I mean, Capaneus got struck by a thunderbolt from lightning, and his body is still smoking, so clearly Thebes is on the right side. Adrastus can hardly hold his tongue at this, but Theseus holds him back and speaks in much more measured terms. Measured, but only in that he uses her his words um, instead of his fists. For now, anyway, he tells the Herald that he wasn't aware that Creon held any power in Athens, and he wasn't aware that corpses were a threat to anyone anywhere, so maybe Creon should do the decent thing and let them be buried. After all, that's what the gods decree should be done when people die. The Herald basically responds, over my dead body, and Theseus shrugs and says, okay, Theseus dismisses the Herald because there's nothing more for them to talk about, and the Herald exits. Then Theseus says that he will gather troops to march on Thebes for the sole purpose of recovering the dead, and Theseus exits. The chorus sings of how bloodshed begets bloodshed. They are grateful to Theseus, but they are also saddened by the anticipated outcome of, of this coming war. The messenger enters with news from Thebes. The battle had been bloody, but ultimately the Athenians were victorious. But when given the chance to enter Thebes and sack the city, Theseus refused. That was not the purpose of the attack. He was there to recover the bodies of the fallen. The bodies of the fallen seven were recovered, and that was all that mattered. Adrastus asks about everyone else who died. The messenger says that they have been buried in a mass grave. Theseus saw to it washing the bodies himself before they were buried. Theseus enters at the head of a funeral cortege in which, the fo- in which five of the seven are carried. The chorus and Adrastus sing a lament. Theseus asks about the five men whose bodies he has recovered, and Adrastus goes into detail on those five. Capaneus, Ateoclus, again, not to be confused with Ateocles, um, Hippomedon, Parthenopius, who happens to be the son of Atalanta, whose name you might recognize from Free to Be You and Me, um, and Tydeus. And also coming back to Atalanta, you have to wonder if that means that she's in the chorus. Um, Adrastus speaks of all of them in tender terms, highlighting their virtues, how they were good friends and cared more for people than things. Um, And each gets his own biography. Um, So five, that makes five. Well, the sixth was swallowed up by the earth, and so he's kind of already been buried, right? And the seventh is Polynices. We already know that Antigone handles his burial. Um, So so we are left with five of these seven. Theseus and Adrastus make plans for the burial. Because Capaneus was killed by Zeus, they decide to create a separate tomb for him, um, and the other four will be burned on a single pyre. Adrastus calls for the mothers to accompany their sons to the burial, but Theseus stops him. He thinks that seeing their bloodied bodies will be too painful and will only make their grief greater, which, yeah, I'm going to come back to that. Um, 
Adrastus listens to Theseus' advice and tells the women to wait. Theseus, Adrastus, and the funeral cortege exit. The chorus of sons exit too, which, yeah, like I said, I'm going to have to come back to that. The chorus now comprised only of the mothers and their handmaids, sing a beautiful lament about how it feels to give birth to a son, to raise him, and then to see him die. As they sing, Evadne enters on a cliff that overhangs the temple. She is the widow of Capaneus, but instead of widow's weeds, she's wearing her wedding dress. Evadne announces her intention to throw herself on the funeral pyre. Iphis enters. He tells the chorus that he has come for the body of his son, Ateoclus, and he is wondering if any of them has seen his daughter, Evadne. She has been distraught ever since she received news of her husband's death. She had been under close watch, but she slipped away, and he worries what she might do. Evadne calls down to him, asking why he speaks to the chorus when she is right there. He begs her to come down and come home with him, but she refuses and leaps to her death. I picture it kind of like the end of Puccini's Tosca. Oh, um, 100-year spoiler alert. I won't say more in case you aren't familiar. You should find there are plenty of good productions out there that you can watch. Tosca's my favorite. Uh, but this is not a podcast about opera verismo, although that could be fun too. Iphis wails and the chorus tries to offer comfort, which is difficult given that they are suffering from the loss of their children too. Iphis speaks of Evadne, of the little girl she'd been and the woman she grew up to be. He is too heartbroken to even collect the ashes of his children and exits to return to his empty home. Like I said, this one's hard. <laughs> okay, I'm good. Well, sort of. Theseus and Adrastus enter along with the chorus of sons. Each of them carries the urn that holds his father's ashes. The boys and their grandmothers sing another heartbreaking lament about how the loss of those seven men will impact the rest of their lives. Theseus says a farewell that includes a note that now they must forever be grateful to Athens. But before they can leave, Athena enters and tells Theseus that the remains of these fallen heroes are not to leave Athens, at least not without a little oath-taking first. She tells Adrastus that the, um, that the remains can only leave Athens if he swears that Argos will never wage war on Athens. And if he breaks this vow, Argos will be ruined. But if he doesn't, these seven sons will grow up to become a new band of seven. And when those seven attack Thebes, they will not fail, and they will avenge their fathers. Theseus thanks Athena for her counsel and agrees to do as she says, because of course you're going to do what a god tells you to do. Everyone exits to make the oath, and the play ends. Euripides is good for catharsis, people. <laughs> I apologize for crying through um, half of that summary. No, not really. It's an appropriate response. It's a, it is, like I said, it's a heart-wrenching play. 
All right. <laughs> but on to an analysis. I'll start with the point um, that I said I'd come back to, uh, but it might take me a minute to get there. This play is Athenian propaganda. Um, it was written during the Peloponnesian War, and there are some places that <laughs> this propaganda is so obvious. Um, I mean, Adrastus gets in a dig at the Spartans that serves no purpose. He's come to Athens because you simply can't trust, trust Spartans. There, there's no reason for that line to be there, except if you're in Athens fighting a war with Sparta. Um, I have to wonder how much cheering there was in the Athenian audience at that line. But we see this propaganda even more in the conversation between Theseus and the Theban Herald. The play is set at a time that Athens had a king, but we still see the Athenian democracy at work in this play, a reminder that Athens, with its democracy, is better than Sparta. Sound like any other countries we know of today? Anyway, Theseus himself berates the Theban herald for seeking a king in Athens because Athens is a free city and doesn't have kings. So the king of Athens is saying that there is no king, which is, again, propaganda about how great Athens is. Even though there was a time when Athens did not have a democracy, making it seem as though there was always democracy, even when there were kings, highlights this difference between Athens and Sparta. Um, it, this, it's key in convincing the deems, the common people of Athens, that Athens is superior to her enemy in Sparta. But it's also interesting to read the Herald's response to how Theseus describes the government of Athens. It's foolish, the Herald says, to let just anyone have a vote. This isn't to say that a farmer may not be smart, but he simply doesn't have time to think about politics, and so he shouldn't have any say in them. And this is not me speaking. This is Euripides speaking. Um, that is what the Herald says. It's one of, one of the things he talks about specifically. And, and this is very platonic. Um, Plato writes about philosopher kings and how this is the ideal ruler. And that's really what the Herald is getting at as an ideal form of government, is one with philosopher kings where Theseus, Theseus is saying the ideal form of government is a democracy. And these are both, both of them make valid arguments about the pros and cons of democracy. Theseus argues for government in which poor and rich have equal voice, while the Herald argues that that those who are educated have a better understanding, can, can therefore make good good rulers without needing the voice of the people because they already, if, they're a, if you're a philosopher king, you understand that position. Um, and, and again, there's merit to there's merit to that argument. And that's why, at least here in the U.S., theoretically, <laughs> we have a modern public education system. That, that's why it was created, was so that, in theory, poor and rich alike would, would receive the proper education to be informed voters, to be able to themselves be in, in their own right philosopher kings, knowing who to vote for, to therefore represent them in the democracy. So, um, yeah, representative democracy, right? It's not, not direct. In Athens, they had a direct democracy. Anyway, now, 
You could probably write a dissertation on politics as discussed in this play. Um, But the tragedy of this play has nothing to do with Theseus. There is a reason we see the chorus from the start. They are a constant reminder of death and grief and the toll of war on those left behind. But there is one thing that is somewhat confusing. How many mothers are on stage? If Sophocles has told us the Oedipus myth correctly, um, Yocaste is long dead by the time the events of Seven of Thebes, Seven Against Thebes takes place, and by the time we get to Antigone, um, because she died when Antigone and Polynices and Antiochus were still children, right? Um, but that's if, if Sophocles didn't make that point up. Okay, so if even if she were still alive, there's Polynices is her son, and we have another story about that with Antigone. He's in Thebes, so it doesn't make sense for for Iocasta to be on stage. Um, so there there are six, um, and but there are only five bodies returned because one has been swallowed up by the earth. So how many mothers are on stage? Are there seven or six or five? They refer to themselves as seven, but should we take that number at face value? How would you cast the chorus of this play? And the person, I might start crying again. The person this play makes me think of is Mamie Till Mobley. She is the mother of Emmett Till. She is the reason Emmett Till had an open casket funeral and that the photographs of his broken body were widely disseminated. So, when Theseus tells Adrastus that mothers shouldn't see the bodies of their sons who were killed in battle, all I can think of is Mamie Till Mobley and the body of her son. Is it really better for mothers not to have to see their sons? And if these grown women will suffer too much from seeing their bodies, what must this sight do to the boys who do attend the funeral, who see their fathers? And is Euripides trying to pass judgment at that point in the play? So, deep breath, because this is a rough one, isn't it? What are your thoughts on this play? How would you interpret it for a modern audience? What would you focus on? The politics or the grief or something else? Come share your thoughts on the blog. I'd love to hear them. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link, depending on the server, are in the show notes. On Wednesday, we will read book eight of the Odyssey. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.